us to the ninth chapter of the book of Daniel. Uh, If you're familiar with Daniel, you probably know that uh, the end of this chapter is easily the most um, disputed part of the book of Daniel. I mean, easily, it's not even close. Uh, So hopefully, Lord willing, next Sunday we will walk through the 70 weeks of Daniel's prophecy at the end of Daniel 9, and uh, there is... Man, it's a humbling experience just trying to prepare for that passage. But today we plan to cover the first 19 verses of Daniel 9, and this is really going to be Daniel's prayer, uh, Daniel's prayer before the Lord. And uh, Papa Fred, I'm going to ask if you would pray for us in just a second. We are going to be uh, borrowing from Sinclair Ferguson in the outline. We've kind of adapted and moved, kind of reordered his outline a little bit to to give a little structure today to what we will be, uh, what we'll be covering. But... uh, Papa Fred, could you pray for us? Thank you, uh, Mark. Uh, Dear Lord, uh, you know, have mercy on us uh, through your steadfast love and guide us this afternoon as we uh, exposit this great prayer. Uh, I've been convicted for the entire week that I don't pray like Daniel prays, and uh, um, I, I'm, I think I've, I've learned a lot. Uh, I, I've grown a lot in that uh, uh, endeavor, and yet uh, as I read these words, and I, I want us to do that carefully this afternoon, uh, it, it's just almost explosive in the way that you uh, uh, and Daniel communicate with one another, and then your reaction and, and to his prayer, to his great prayer. So be with us today through your spirit, Lord, and that we may properly do credit to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So uh, we are going to sort of break it down today into five parts, and the first part is just going to cover the first three verses. This is true prayer uh, impacts world history. And uh, Greg, could you just read the first three verses of the chapter? Yeah. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Greg, would you mind just sort of giving us a little bit of introduction as to what's, uh, what's going on here at, at this moment in history? Um, yeah, so Daniel obviously is a much older gentleman. Um, what was it said? Maybe 82 years old at this point. He's uh, getting up there in years. Um, <clears throat> and obviously we've talked about Daniel's devotional life. Uh, you know, his consistent prayer. I think it's also right to assume based on what he says in these first couple of verses that he was regular in the scriptures as well um, in the Old Testament as he had it to that point. Um, Because look at verse two, he says, in the first year of Darius's reign, I perceived in the books, plural, the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet. So significantly, Jeremiah's prophecy was already written down for God's people at this point. And Daniel and Jeremiah were, um, 
were, uh, what's the word, contemporaneous, or um, they, they lived at the same time. Da- Jeremiah is dead at this point. Daniel was much younger than Jeremiah was, but they overlapped a little bit. Um, and so we know that the, peop- the, the Israelites in Babylon had access to what Jeremiah wrote. And Daniel apparently had been studying this pretty thoroughly, pretty, pretty intensely, because he sees that God had made a promise that his people were going to be in exile for a certain number of years, and then at the end of that time, they were going to go back to the promised land. And Daniel perceives that. Um, and so as an Israelite who has spent the majority of his life in a foreign land, um, the fact that the people of God are about to, by God's promise, go back to the land they were exiled from is a big deal. And so Daniel, in accordance with um, with other places, I think it's uh, Second Chronicles when the temple, or First Chronicles when the temple is finished and Solomon builds it, and he has a portion of that prayer where he says, you know, and if at some point our people, you know, sin against you and you kick them out of the land and they, in the land of their exile, they humble themselves and they seek your face and they pray towards um, this temple um, and towards Jerusalem, you'll hear their prayer, you'll heal them, you'll bring them back. Daniel is bringing all that to bear in light of God's promise that after 70 years, Israel would come back. So it's pretty, pretty significant um, what's going on. And I mean, he realizes he gets to be a part of God's plan to bring his people back. In fact, if you'll hold your spot here, that's really good. If, if you hold your spot here, let's turn to a, a verse that we've probably all heard many times. Go to Jeremiah 29. Probably to a lot of us, Jeremiah 29, 11 is a well-known verse. It's, it's a, a very famous verse. I want to I try to put the verse in, in, its, in its historical context to see what, what it's actually referring to. Jeremiah chapter 29. And look with me starting at verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage uh, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, uh, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, that's Babylon, and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Verse 10, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So a lot of us as Christians know the verse, Jeremiah 29, 11. Behold, the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans for hope and a future. In the immediate context, that verse is referring to the fact that 70 years from when this is first written, 70 years later, God is going to bring Israel out of Babylon back to the land, and he's going to restore them there in the land. And um, I don't think it's wrong to say all the promises of God find their yes in Christ, and that there is a sense in which God is saying he's going to prosper his people always and eternally in, in, in the new heavens and new earth. But in the immediate context, it's this explicit command, 70 years from now, and I'm going to bring you guys back. 
Daniel is already reading this, because this was written decades earlier. Daniel's already reading this when he is in exile about 60 some odd years later. And Daniel gets a hold of this and he's reading it and he believes the scriptures. I mean, we don't tend to think about, we tend to think that we should be devoted to the Bible. We don't tend to think of Bible characters being devoted to earlier books of the Bible. And yet that's what it was. Daniel is, 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 is praying just not long after the death of Jeremiah, and he's looking back at Jeremiah's book, which is pretty freshly written scripture. He already believes it's God's promised word. He already believes it's infallible and inerrant because he believes he can take it to the bank. He's then praying back to God the 70-year promise that Jeremiah had just written a few decades before Daniel. So this shows you that scriptures were received as God's word from the very beginning. Jeremiah was considered a true prophet by Daniel from the very start, and Daniel devotes himself to the book of Jeremiah, and he, he actually bases his prayer in Daniel 9 on what Jeremiah had previously written. So we can turn back to, to uh, Daniel 9. Papa Fred? You know, I, um, you mentioned, uh, um, Greg, you mentioned uh, Jeremiah, and we don't know uh, what books Daniel had with him. I mean, he obviously took some, he took Jeremiah with him, and and but he would have known that these same uh, blessings and curses were also forecasted uh, in Leviticus and and Genesis. Uh, you 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 do good, I'll prosper you. You do bad, I'll I will smite you, and I will send you into captivity. Actually, so he really just kind of spells it out. Uh, Daniel would have known all that, but more recently he had been uh, reading Jeremiah and, and came up with the 70 weeks and, and he said, it's time. And he looked at his watch or sundial or whatever and he was excited about that. Yes, and it's, it's interesting. The fact that God promised to do something did not stop Daniel from praying that God would do that thing. So this is an important lesson for us. Yes. God promises to work all things for good, but it's not wrong to pray for God to do that. It's, it, we know that one day God will rescue us from every evil deed and bring us safely into his kingdom. It's not wrong to pray and ask God to do that. Uh, there's nothing wrong at all. It's not, it's not like a doubting or lack of faith to pray the promises of God back to him. Daniel literally takes the very words God said through Jeremiah, 70 years and I'm bringing you back. And Daniel says, Lord, it's almost 70 years. Please do it. Please do what you've said you will do. And there is nothing wrong to say, God, please bring justice to this world in your good time. We know he's going to do it, but we should still pray that God bring justice to this, to this world. Pray, God, that you save your people, that you save your sheep. He's going to do it, but we should pray that God do it. Uh, the promises of God should not make us less prayerful. They should make us all the more bold in the way that we uh, choose to pray. And Daniel's prayer is part of what affects this event. I believe that God uses means and ends, and one of those means was Daniel's faithful praying, and I believe through Daniel's prayers and God's promises, it, it changed world history. So what Daniel prayed in secret, we get a glimpse into here, actually changes the course of human history with the, with the return of, of Israel from Babylonian captivity, and our prayers too can shape history. I, I, I saw a um, uh, on Twitter a, a week or two ago, I saw a pastor, or some, I don't know if it's a pastor, somebody in a church uh, posted a picture. And it was a, it, was a, it was a sanctuary, a little smaller than ours, and it wasn't even half empty. It was probably, oh, not many people were in the sanctuary. Just a small gathering in a relatively decent-sized room. And the, the person who posted the picture just captured it and said, I believe it was a prayer meeting. It was like a Wednesday night prayer meeting or something like that. Just a small gathering of, of saints in a, in a sanctuary. And, it, and the, the person captioned it and said, I believe that world history will owe more to meetings like this 
than the decisions, you know, of kings and dignitaries kind of a thing. And I think that that is biblically absolutely correct. I think that moms who are praying for their lost sons and daughters as they are adult children wandering from the faith, I believe those prayers of moms through tears that no one ever really sees, I believe the Lord uses that in tremendous ways to shake and transform the world. We we talked about St. Augustine's conversion as an adult. It was largely due to his mother's prayers, I believe in the sovereignty of God, that he was converted. And did Augustine affect the world? Oh my goodness, I mean, Augustine has affected, uh, in some ways for bad, but mostly for good, he's affected church history in great and tremendous ways. Why? Because of a, a mother's faithful prayers for her lost son, who was straying through his 20s into his 30s away from the Lord. So let us never discount the, the earth-shaking power of prayer, because it's not prayer that's powerful, it's the God to whom we pray. Well, and interesting too, you, you say that and, and it, it's confirmed or, co- or collaborated by the fact that, uh, I just pulled this up, Cyrus is mentioned 23 times, the name Cyrus. Uh, it's in Second Chronicles twice, it's in Ezra, it's in Isaiah. And, and here's the, quickly, the, the Second Chronicles uh, verse, verses, it's the Second Chronicles 36, 22 and 23. Now in the first year of Osiris, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, a pagan king, I have you, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem. God has charged a pagan king to build him a house and to restore the city of Jerusalem which is in Judah, whoever is among you of his people, may the Lord, his God be with him, let him go up. So yes, he influences world history. This was at that time, this was the greatest empire uh, in the world, the Mm -hmm. Persia, Medo-Persia empire. So, All right, let's move here to the second point. This is the prayers, true prayers always, true prayer always expresses the, uh, the needs of the people of God. True prayer always expresses the needs of the people of God. This is a longer section. Greg, can you read verses 4 to 15? Yeah. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belong righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who were near and those who were far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. And he, he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. 
As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice." And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. Now, before we get into the details of this, um, Sinclair Ferguson speculates, I think he's onto something here. If you go and read the, so this is Daniel 9. If you go and read the promise, uh, excuse me, the chapter of prayer that comes later in this history over uh, we're about 100 years later, you have Nehemiah, his prayer in Nehemiah 9. So Daniel 9, Nehemiah 9. Um, if you read the Nehemiah 9 prayer, it sounds very similar to the themes and the basic idea of what's going on when Daniel prays here. And Sinclair says, I can't prove it, but it would not surprise me if Nehemiah's prayer was in some way influenced by the earlier prayer of Daniel. It's very similar in what it says. And it, certainly, whether that's true or not, it is true that um, being around people who are fervently praying tends to rub off on others. And um, I have this little book that I heard about from uh, another book that told me about this. It's called The Power of Prayer, The New York Revival of the Year 1858. Now, I had never heard of the New York Revival of 1858, I don't think, in my life. And uh, it's written by Samuel Prime. And it just recounts stories of what happened. And just to give you a little sense of the beginning of this, it, there was an economic downturn in New York and a number of cities around this same time period, 1856 and 7. There was an economic downturn. A lot of businesses were in trouble. A lot of people lost money, basically. And in 1858, uh, there was a man, I don't even know if he's named in this entire book, but a man who wanted to start a prayer meeting at his church. And his idea was he would do a lunchtime prayer meeting from 12 to 1. He would invite business people in the, in the area of New York to come and visit if they wanted to pray, if they could be there for 20 minutes, half an hour, or the whole hour, it didn't matter. Just come on, say, Monday or whatever day it was and, and come, pray for us, come pray with us. On the very first day, he put, out, uh, he put out signs, little things around the area. He told people about it. And on the very first time he had uh, this prayer meeting begin, he walked upstairs into, the, into this church building, and he walked into the main room where all the seating was, and there was absolutely no one else there. So the man who started the prayer meeting goes in by himself at 12 o'clock, and for the first, I don't know, it was the first 30 minutes or so, he prays completely alone uh, on his face, praying that Lord, the Lord would move uh, just tremendously in the city of New York. Well, after about 20 or 30 minutes, one person, another businessman comes in, and joins him in prayer. A little bit later, a second person, and then a third. And on the first prayer meeting, I think there was four people total, and they prayed to the end of the hour, and then they departed, and they went about their day. Well, the next week, they got together, and the next time, at the beginning of the meeting, they had 20 people there. Well, this was a good, this was a good turn, and the 20 people prayed throughout the hour. Well, then the next week, they had an enormous group was growing. Suddenly, we're getting close to 100 people. So then he said, well, let's have more than one prayer meeting a week. Let's start doing them throughout the week. And what started happening was a, a work of the Lord where you had hundreds and then thousands of people in, in, uh, in major cities across uh, the United States at the time where uh, people were gathering in prayer and amazing things were starting to happen. And this book basically narrates stories of individual conversions and things that happened that uh, will, 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 they're moving, frankly, to see the Lord's faithfulness and His work through uh, different people's lives as they prayed together. But the point is, one person praying led to others, led to others, and it, it had an had a, a effect with this. It, it spread. It moved. And 
when you're around a Christian who is genuinely in prayer for a lost person, and they're even in tears about it, and they are, they're impassioned about it, you can't walk away from that person and not feel something as a, resp- as a response. You think, okay, I, I want to be involved in this. I want to be leaning into this. And uh, Daniel sets an example here that should rub off, I think, on all of us, that we should all begin to see the, the, the power of this kind of faithful prayer life that Daniel uh, so cl- clearly demonstrated. John Lennox, who also wrote a book on, on Daniel, uh, recalls that at Cambridge, he, 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 he was raised as a Christian and in a Christian home, but he, and he trusted God and he trusted God's word. But he said when he, when he read scripture, and he was a mathematician, he said it was kind of dry. And he, and he confessed that to a senior mentor of his. And he said, why don't you join me in a Bible study? And he said, 180 degree change took place in his life. He, he said, you know, I just, it became alive. We talked about it. Uh, these guys were more, uh, were wiser and older than myself. And, and, and it really made a difference in his life. So uh, the power of prayer, the power, power of reading the word. Um, and, and so we, you know, yes, we can do it alone. Daniel went in every day. We know that that got him in the lion's den, you know, mm-hmm. praying to Jerusalem. But there's power in prayer with one another in small groups and in churches and so. Well, it's interesting um, getting more into the text here, um, you know, the, spe- the specifics of Daniel's prayer. I mean, again, I mentioned when I was speaking at the first, you know, Daniel was very saturated with the Word of God, and so he was interpreting uh, his own experience, he was interpreting the experience of the people of Israel in light of what God had said in his word, because he mentions Moses twice, twice. Um, in this, um, and how Israel had broke, basically broken faith with God. They did the exact things God told them not to do. They didn't do the things God told them to do. Um, I mean, he understood quite well, you know, that he was, you know, with all the blessings and the favor that God had shown him, he was experiencing those in a land of exile. He wasn't experiencing them in the homeland. He was experiencing them in the land of exile. And so he, he, he knew um, and felt in his own, own heart and mind the reality of Israel's sin against God. And I think it's instructive for us, um, you know, not, not every time that we pray, not every time that we think about, you know, our own sinfulness uh, is this going to happen. But there should be times when the reality of the wickedness and the evil of our sin against God should almost be overwhelming to the point where we realize that we are 100% dependent on God's mercy and God's promise, that God will bring any, any kind of restoration that we experience will not be because of anything we do, but only because God is merciful and God keeps his promises. And Daniel here, um, you know, he says in verse 14, Um, you know, the Lord has kept this ready for the Lord, our God is righteous in all the works that he's done. When we feel a sense of God's holiness and God's righteousness and our own sin, we, we should be humbled into the dust for a little while. That's, that's a a good place to be. I'm not saying this, this is like going to be our experience every time we pray, but it's a good thing every now and then to be brought to a place we, where we realize that we exist and continue to exist solely by the mercy 
of God. Can I just yeah. make a comment about that? That's a great point. Everyone, we, we know the story of the woman of the city who was a sinner who came and wept over Jesus' feet in Luke 7. And Jesus makes that comment. Remember the Pharisee, Simon the Pharisee is there and he's going, if, this, if he knew, you know, he claims to be a prophet. If he knew what kind of woman this was, probably a prostitute, something like that, if he knew what kind of woman this was, he would never let, uh, he would never let her touch his feet, weep on his feet, none of that stuff. He, he would say, get out, get out of here, get away from me. And then Jesus says, let me, let me tell you something, Simon. He says, yes, go ahead, tell me. And uh, Jesus says, okay, a guy had two debtors. One owed him 50 denarii, another one 500 denarii. He said, imagine the guy cancels the debt of both of them. Which of the two will love him the most? Well, the answer, even Simon gets this right. He says, well, surely the man who you canceled the larger debt, right? The guy who owed 500 is going to love you more than the guy who canceled, you canceled 50 uh, denarii. And Jesus said, you've answered correctly. And then he says, when I came into your house, you offered no water for my dirty feet, but she has washed my, my feet with her tears. You offer me, and he goes on and on. You, you did not anoint my head, but she's anointed me, and on and on. He just goes on and on, showing the differences of how they've treated Jesus. And he, he says, those who have been forgiven little, love little. And those who have been forgiven much, love much. And he says, she understands her great sin, and therefore she has a great love for me as her Savior. That's what Jesus is saying. And going with what Greg's point is, the, the more we feel the way, I mean like really feel it at times, like a, a, a real sense of the, the, the horror of my own personal sin. I hope you've had these experiences where it almost overwhelms you, like you said. It almost knocks, it's like an Isaiah 6 in the temple. You see God's holiness with the eyes of your heart and you, you just feel like I'm ruined, I'm undone. In those moments, those are the very moments that could be a springboard to understanding God's incredible love for us. Because those who are forgiven much love much. They understand God's, he's canceled an enormous debt. And the larger I know my sin debt to be, the more I'm going to love God for saving me from it, from canceling that debt from me. And so don't ever think that understanding our sin deeply is an enemy of loving God more. It's actually understanding our sin more deeply and how much we've been forgiven that leads to us loving God all the more because we realize the incredible magnitude of his forgiving grace and his love for us. And Daniel here doesn't put himself outside the group of sinners, which is amazing because Daniel is about the most impeccable human being other than Jesus, you know, in the whole of the, the Bible. It's Joseph and Daniel are the two shining characters of the Old Testament. They seem to have no faults at all. Yet Daniel talks about himself. He includes himself in the category of the sinners. And he, says, he asks for God's tremendous mercy and grace. And so we should not be uh, hesitant to do, I think, to do the same. One thing that, that I noticed, and going back to verse three, three real quickly, he, he, then, then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes, which is the total humbling of oneself in repentance to pray. And that very similar to what Job did after he was confronted by God, he repented in sackcloth and ashes. And, uh, and, and interesting, in, Greg, you, you read verse 14. The word Yahweh is only mentioned in this chapter seven times. Uh, he, he calls God by a lot of different names, which God has, but he uses Yahweh seven different times in this first part of verse 19 too. And I want to say something too, um, thinking about Daniel confessing sin. This was something that struck me where I'm actually going to verse 20, which we didn't read. This is not part of our real consideration. But th this matters because look at what he says. There's just the very beginning part. He says, while I was speaking and praying, 
confessing my sin and the sin of my mm. people, Israel. What's, what's significant about that is Daniel, as holy and righteous as he was, because I think it was in, the, in Ezekiel, like God says, you know, even if Daniel and Noah. Job and one other person no, Noah, and Noah, you know, I wouldn't save this nation. Right. Even if those three were in there, they'd be mm -hmm. saved, but no one else would. Even as righteous as Daniel is, he doesn't adopt a posture of saying, well, Lord, I know, I, you know, the, the Elijah syndrome, look how righteous I am. No one else is. I'm the only one. I mean, he's confessing his sin and the sin of his people. It's not like, Lord, I'm going to confess their sin because they're too, you know, spiritually immature or whatever to confess it themselves. So Mr. Righteous me, I'm going to do that. No, he's confessing his sin. He's owning his sin as well as the sin of his people. And so there's no boasting here. Um, you know, he's not playing the role of the Pharisee. God, I thank you. I'm not like those other Israelites who broke covenant, who did. He's like, I'm right here with them. Um, and I think that's, that's an important posture when we pray is to own our own sin and not just get focused on the wrongs that other people do. That's important because, you know, I mentioned Isaiah 6. Uh, I, in the way the book is written, Isaiah 5, he keeps saying woe to all these people, right? Woe to you who stay up late drinking alcohol until late in the morning. Woe to you who call evil good and good evil. Woe to you, woe to you. If you read Isaiah 5, he's putting woes on all the people. Isaiah 6, he sees God and what does he say? Woe is me. I am ruined. From a man of unclean lips, living among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So Isaiah doesn't say, I'm the perfectly righteous guy, and everyone else has got unclean lips. He says, no, starting with me, I've got unclean lips, and so do all the other people. And that's why that coal from the altar is placed on his very lips, cleansing him at the very place of the sin that he had confessed. But we should never make ourselves as the, we, we aren't the ones who struggle with sin, it's those people. Mm. That, that, is a, that is obviously a, a horrifying state to be in. So here you just see uh, Daniel pouring out all of his, all the needs that the people have before the Lord. Uh, we should not be afraid to do that. Um, Papa, for any other comments on this section? Well, I, I, think, I think we need specificity in our prayers. I mean, it's okay to pray for, you know, mom and dad and the kids and that kind of thing. But I mean, we, Daniel prays for the, uh, before, you know, he's praying for the world. He's praying for, uh, for others. He's praying for Israel. He's praying for... He's praying for the, he's praying the promises of God. And that is what this book is all about, the, is the promises of God. So you could begin in Genesis and wind up in Revelation and never run out of, of text to pray. And, and that, should, that should encourage us to, to want to pray boldly. I, I, actually, I got into this a little bit this weekend. I had a chance to pray. And, and, and I, I guess some people wonder what I, where I was going with this, but you know, we can call down the heavens. Uh, you know, Daniel did. I mean, he, he, he operated at the apex of these great uh, powers of, the, of that era. And, and yet he, he was audacious. Uh, in fact, I'm, I'm jumping ahead a little bit too. Uh, in, in verse 19, I love this. I love this. Uh, oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name for your glory. I ask you to act. I mean, I mean, goodness gracious, what a, do, do we pray like that? Mm -hmm. and, and I was convicted that I don't, so. Anything else on that, Greg? No, we're, All we're right, let's move on. move on here to the next point. This is just verses 16 to 18. Uh, true prayer appeals to the mercy of God. Now, this is, we've picked up on this theme a little bit, but let's continue here. Verses 16 to 18. Uh, Fred, could you read? Uh, 16 through 18. 16 to 18. 
O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our father, Jerusalem, and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for his own sake. O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Papa, could you start us off on that? Oh, yes. I mean, you see, you see he's, he's, asking for, he's asking for mercy. He's, uh, he's uh, in, in 18 there, he says, the city that's called by your name. I mean, your glory is at stake and the fact that Jerusalem is lying desolate. Um, uh, he says in, in 17, he says, oh Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary. Uh, reminding me of the ironic blessing. Uh, make your face shine for God's glory. Um, you know, he, uh, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and, and, and wrath turn away from 16 from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill because of our sins for the iniquity of, of our father. Uh, you know, our wrath cause your, excuse me, our sin caused your wrath to be focused on Jerusalem. Turn that wrath away now and, and deliver us because of your great mercy. I mean, it just goes on and on. Yeah, it would be amazing to say, I mean, those are the kind of prayers the Lord especially loves to answer, is the prayers that admit our sin, our unrighteousness, pleading for God to act in mercy, and then also pleading that His face would be shining upon His sanctuary, sh shining upon us. Uh, Greg? Um, I'm trying to find it. I think it's in Ezra. Um, I was trying to look at it and see if I could see it really quickly. You want me to make a comment while you're looking that up? Yes, please Okay, let me just, I want to read a little excerpt from this book I mentioned, okay? I don't want to take too long on this, but this is just one of the stories just give me a moment to read for a second here. Uh, this is from the uh, 1858 New York Revival. Listen to this. One of the conversions, well, one of the families that was led to Christ. A young man of fashion, of wealth and education, of high social position in one of the fashionable avenues in this great city, found out in the progress of this revival that he was a sinner and that he had a soul to be saved or lost. He felt himself on the verge of ruin and the brink of eternal despair. He was bowed down under the load of his sins as grievous burdens. He sought relief and found it not. The requirements of the law stared him in the face, and he felt justly condemned. His heart was filled with sorrow. His countenance bore the mark of woes. Day after day, he went about with his head bowed down like a bulrush, and day after day, the burden became more and more insupportable. What should he do? Where will he go? He had, he had a young wife whom he loved and a sister also who lived with him. Well, this young man was led to Christ, and then listen to what happens. He wants to go home and share this with his family. He comes home and he says, when he met his wife that evening, he passed it, he, first he passed into his library and there before God, his heavenly father, in the name of the Lord Jesus, he poured out his heart and asked for strength and grace from on high to assist him in his duty. He wants to try to mention the gospel to his wife and his sister who are not believers. He just became a Christian. When he met his wife that evening, she saw at once that a great change had taken place in him and she saw it with awe but said nothing. At length, he said, my dear wife, would you have any objections to our having family worship? This was not normal. After a moment's surprise and hesitation, she said with true politeness, certainly not if it is your pleasure. Bring me a Bible then, please, and draw up under the gaslight and let us read and pray. He read a chapter and then kneeled down, but his wife and sister sat upright in their seats. 
and he felt that he was alone on his knees. He lifted up his eyes to God and cried out in the bitterness of his soul, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And gathering strength, he went on in his prayer, pouring out his most earnest cries and supplication that God would have mercy on his beloved wife and sister. So earnest, so importunate was the prayer that God would show his converting grace and power on the spot that the heart of his wife was melted and overcome. And she slipped from her seat upon her knees beside him, putting her arms around his neck. Ere she, had, ere she was aware, she burst out into one agonizing cry to the Lord Jesus for mercy on her soul. And then the sister knelt down by his other side, and she too put her arms around him and burst into a flood of tears. He continued to pray. He devoted himself and those with him to God. He confessed and bewailed his and their manner of life heretofore. He pleaded the promises of God to all those that seek him. And with unspeakable joy, he made mention of the amazing grace of God and the pardon of his sins. And he besought that they all might find and obtain together peace and forgiveness through a crucified Savior. But the book is full of, of those kinds of stories. It's just a powerful Daniel-like prayer. I, I've got nothing, Lord. Please show mercy to me and to my people, to my family. And the Lord was incredibly kind to, to bring them all to Christ in a very uh, short period of time in that revival. I was, I was captured by the, the words, he found that he was a sinner. Mm -hmm. That's as a result of participating in this. That's right. Program. And, 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 and that's why we need to read together. We may find, we know <laughs> that we are sinners, but we may find if we, if you don't know that you are and you need a savior. And that's why Charles Spurgeon wrote this little book, which I still have never read. I need to read it. It's called just a prayer meeting. And if you've heard of this book, he titled it Just a Prayer Meeting because he heard someone in his church dismissively say, oh, tonight it's just a prayer meeting at the church. No big deal. We don't need to go to that. Just a prayer meeting. And Spurgeon about had a connection. <laughs> just a prayer meeting. So he wrote a whole book called Just a Prayer Meeting. He said, this is how God changes all of human history. It's just a prayer meeting. Amen. <laughs> okay, not quite as overwhelming as that. But um, look at verse 18. Um, with the last thing Daniel says, he says, for we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Amen. And I wonder how much this, this understanding of God's grace, because remember grace is undeserved favor. It's unmerited favor from God. And so <clears throat> Daniel again is recognizing that anything good from God at this point will not be because they deserve it. Mm -hmm. It'll be contrary to what they deserve. Mercy is almost always shown contrary mm -hmm. to what they deserve. And I wonder how much this influenced Ezra, the priest, who went back with some of the exiles because they come back, they're, they're already engaging in things that God had already told them not to do. Ezra is just tore up about it. He offers this prayer of just utter brokenness. And in verse 13, Ezra 10, you don't have to turn there. He says this, and after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, and listen to this, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such wow. a remnant as this. I mean, they're back from exile, 70 years away from home. And he's like, God, this was less than we deserved. And so I wonder how much Daniel had an influence on Ezra. I'm sure they at least might've known of each other. Um, but Daniel is saying, listen, it's not because of us. In fact, uh, God, he knows you don't, if you gave us all that we deserved, we'd be done. Deal with us based on your mercy, on your pity. Take pity on us, helpless People And I think that plays into the last thing we wanted to mention, that true prayer always seeks the glory of God. Um, listen to this, because Daniel 9, uh, 9, verse 19, he says, at the very end, 
Um, delay not for your own sake, my God. And then he says, and your people who are called by your name. I want to turn to Isaiah 48. And I'm sure Daniel knew this. Um, I remember the first time I heard Piper preach on this, drew my attention to this. I've come back to this so many times. You know, at root, uh, why does God not ultimately cast his people off permanently? Listen to this, Isaiah 48 Beginning in verse nine, he says, for my name's sake, I defer my anger for the sake of my praise. I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake, for my own sake. I do it for how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another. Daniel understands God's commitment to his glory and his name in the world. And he understands that in choosing Israel, God has attached his name and attached his reputation to his people. And so if God were to utterly cut them off and destroy them, God's reputation could be questioned. And Daniel knows this. And so Daniel is, again, praying a promise. He's praying a reality about who God is and what God is committed to back to God saying, God, not because of our righteousness, your mercy for your name and your glory, answer this prayer. And he knows, and we should know that when we ask God in accordance with his word to do something for his name, to do something for his glory, that's a prayer God delights to answer Mm -hmm. and always will. No, that's fantastic. And I, I think that we have to kind of get with our prayers go down to the very foundation of why we are asking what we're asking for. Is it at the, at the bedrock of our prayer, is my real motivation comfort, ease, security in this world? Is, it just the, just, is, is that my bedrock desire? If that's the case, those are not prayers that are honoring to the Lord, and they're not even, we're not truly praying in those moments. The, the bedrock has to be, God, make me more like Christ so that you receive more glory from my life. Make me love your word more so that I can better emulate Christ by the way that I live. Help me better know your will, obey your will, serve you in a way that would honor you, whether it comes by prosperity or adversity that you choose for me. I want to be totally devoted to you. I want my life to be for your glory. And so at the bedrock, for whatever it is we ask, God's glory needs to be at the, at the absolute foundation. Fred, we're almost out of time. I just want to mention one thing. Uh, Greg met, uh, read Ezra. Uh, as an adjunct to reading this, read Ezra and Nehemiah because, mm. yes. True prayer is based on the fact that, that prayer impacts world history. This history that begins in Daniel is carried on and completed through Ezra and Nehemiah to the rebuilding of the temple and Jerusalem for the people to go back home to. So. No, that's fantastic. Right before we pray. So true prayer impacts world history and it's based on God's word. It expresses the needs of God's people. It appeals to the mercy of God and true prayer always seeks the glory of God. Uh, Papa Fred, could you close us? Father God, uh, you know, it's just, I, I'm overwhelmed right now just reading this prayer. I, I could read it over and over again and, and teach us uh, just like this prayer meeting example that Mark gave in New York, um, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray like Daniel. Teach us to pray audacious prayers. Teach us to, to focus on not only our needs, but the needs of others, our people, your church, uh, world missions, uh, the, the, the world situation that we're, we find ourselves embroiled in. Daniel wasn't content just to be alone in Babylon praying 
for himself. He was praying for his people who were away from home as well. And there were exiles in, in uh, Egypt and other places as well during this same time. So uh, expand our horizons. Uh, this book, uh, your book, is, is a guide to our prayer life and, and let it be something that motivates us every day to be on our knees. And, and, and like the example of the gentleman in New York, even lead our family to faith in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Lord willing, next Sunday we will hear the response to Daniel's prayer, and it is, it is quite a perplexing and challenging passage. So Daniel's 70 weeks, Lord willing, next Sunday. Thank you, guys.